0: Yes, we do. And I was not there for that interview, <laughs> but Sarah tells me it was awesome.
1: It was very good. We talked about how he he's a historic, he's writing in cozy mystery and historical mystery. He started out in cozy, how he transitioned to historical, and, you know, how he found his cover artist, how he edits his books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just kind of he's fairly new. I mean, not brand new cuz he had a series that was out for a while mm-hmm. before he transitioned, but Basically, like, you know, how he's become, he's very successful, how he's become successful. And we, he and I geeked out about writing historicals. So, (laughs) about research and all kinds of stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that's super fun, though. I know you love that. I do. Yeah.
1: I do. Yeah.
0: So, what's been going on with you this week?
1: Well, um, I've been still working on the Kickstarter. um, Mm -hmm. And, wow, it's a lot of work. But I think I'm nearing the finish line on the prep to get everything done. Right, And then pretty soon I'll put it up for a preview. And yeah. so um, people can, you know, like you you put it up and people can sign up to be notified when it goes right. live. So right. soon I will be at that stage. I yeah. hope fingers crossed. Yeah, But um, I made a video today and I do have a tip. If anyone's going to do Kickstarter, don't record your video in zoom because the quality, the video quality is not oh, as high okay. yeah. because, um, I remember somebody saying that, like, if you do a screen share Mm -hmm. in Zoom, they use a higher quality. Mm -hmm. But if you don't do a screen share, which I did not, and I got done, I was like, oh, so I'm going with the, it's, I'm not going for perfection this time. And I have a lot of graphics and stuff that, so it's not all me, but Mm -hmm. definitely keep that in mind if you're doing a Kickstarter.
0: So how did you end (laughs) up recording it?
1: Um, I just used Zoom and recorded my screen. Oh, okay. You know, but then I also went into Canva and created a little um video that like shows my cover and oh, okay. kind of grabbed some video uh um, photographs and videos from mm-hmm. deposit photos and put those oh, okay. in there. Okay. And then I laid that over. So like that's the majority of the video is oh okay.
0: So that was not thought, me. Yeah. I thought you were saying don't do it because I did it and it was bad and I had to redo it, but you just (laughs) did it. I I love that. Just just roll with it, Sarah. I'm rolling.
1: I am rolling with it. So that is about the most exciting news I have this week. So what about you? What have you have going on?
0: Uh, I may gain, I don't know, 30 to 50 pounds. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So you have COVID, to explain that. Now. I thought COVID was bad. Uh, <laughs> go to a small town and have a family emergency, and they will fatten you up faster than you can say "small town." Because everybody uh, brings a dish, right? Oh my gosh, we have so much food. There <laughs> are right now at this moment. There's a chocolate cake, but a whole a whole chocolate cake, a pan of banana pudding. A, pan of bread pudding and a pan, a blueberry cobbler, an entire, I've had, I had one serving of the blueberry cobbler. I think I'm the only one that had blueberry cobbler. I, there okay. are I mean, there are a lot of people in our family and I think that's what people think, but they're not all here at the same time.
1: Well, I'll be right over. I'll yeah. help you eat all that.
0: Uh, put the address in the show notes because <laughs> We are not (laughs) going to be able to eat all of this. I mean, I swam today for about 40 minutes because I was like, I've got to work some of this off. It's too hot to walk and my foot's been hurting anyway. So I just was like, well, I'll swim. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's been crazy. It's been crazy. And um, so my sister's, she's doing okay. She's doing okay. Mm -hmm. And, and, we're all okay, depending on the time of day. So you know, I mean, we're hanging in there. Uh, but yeah, uh, if you don't recognize me the next time you see me, you'll know why.
1: So. It's the blueberry cobbler.
0: It's the blueberry. It's probably the banana pudding, if I'm being honest.
1: Yeah. But
0: um, yeah, people have been super, super kind and sweet, and I mean, every time we turn around, somebody is bringing something to the door. Um, yeah. 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 So um, yeah. that's been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's gotten a little. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might have to start just, re, just re-gifting. Yeah, the re-gifting, re-gifting. I know. My mom, there was some donuts or something, but they had been sitting out for a couple of days. My mom's like, should we take these over to so-and-so's house? Because they had a lot of kids and we're like, mm-hmm. no. We're not <laughs> stale donuts. Like that's not, I just hate to throw them away. Yeah. And so then my husband made the bread pudding with some of the oh, there you go. And, and then we had leftover rolls, and so he made the, the bread pudding is outstanding. And uh, but yeah, we're just like <laughs> it's just crazy. My husband's working out in the front room, mm-hmm. and uh my dad this morning said, Well, see you at lunch. <laughs> I mean, there are about oh, a million a, people in this house. It's, it's, it's a, lot a lot of togetherness, too. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a yeah, but oh, it's been good. It's it's been good. I mean, yeah, it's been sad, but it's been good. My mom yesterday got mad. Uh, I mean, this is just a funny story. We're this is going on forever. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I haven't really talked to anybody. Um, but the my mom, we were at the doctor's, and my mom got mad about something because she just felt like they weren't taking care of some. Things with my sister that they should have, and so she storms into the bathroom and she's just in there and she's just talking to herself. And she comes out of the stall, and about that time, a man comes out of the other stall and <laughs> they just look at each other and nod their heads and then turn and <laughs> <on> their- <laughs> So that's pretty much where we're at. That's like our- the. Yeah. everything in a nutshell right there right there that that pretty much tells the whole story right there so uh anyway yeah so we're, we're doing okay we're doing okay. Right. yeah all right well we should get on with this the podcast because yes. people would much rather hear about benedict than my crazy family yes
1: yeah here we go so here's all benedict right.
0: brown excellent
1: well today we're really excited to talk to benedict brown so let me read his bio and we'll get started how are you benedict i'm great thanks <laughs> We're glad to, that you're here. So let me read your bio. It's very really real nice to be here. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> uh, Benedict Brown is the author of British murder mysteries. He started with a contemporary series that not many people read, but lots of them fell in love with. He moved on to the best-selling Lord Edgington investigates, a series set in the 1920s about a mystery-solving lord and his hapless grandson. He lives in Spain with his French wife and very international daughter. It's a great bio. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so tell us how you got into writing.
2: So I've been writing ever since I was a kid. Uh, I definitely started when I was very young. I think I've still got one poem from when I was about seven years old. Um, But I didn't start writing any books until I was 18. And the story goes, I think it's true. I think I didn't just invent this. But the story goes (laughs) that uh, on uh, New Year's Eve, on the millennium, I was really looking forward to it. Everyone was looking forward to it. And pretty much all my friends who were supposed to be having a party and my fa- everyone in my family, everyone got the flu. Everyone got oh sick. My. And so I couldn't go out. I just stayed at home and I felt very sorry for myself. I was about, I think I was <laughs> 17. And I felt I was so sad. And so I stayed at home and I wrote. I started writing a very moody teenage novel, which uh, I, I finished and, and no one has ever read it. And no one will ever read it. And it was terrible. And I hid it under my... Um, my wardrobe and I think it's still there in my my uh, my childhood home in London and uh, after that I went to university the following year and I studied English literature and then I did a master's in creative writing at which point I shifted to kids books and then, mm-hmm. I, read, uh, then I wrote kids books for about 15 years and I tried the traditional route and got quite far along that path but uh, it's notoriously difficult and every yeah. time an agent or a publisher or even a film producer at one point uh, was interested in my books it would not last quite long enough to, to make any money from them. So, you know, it would always fall at the last hurdle.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, But I learned a lot from that process. And then one day, uh, uh, someone who I'd met on a writing website sent me a message saying how well they were doing in Cozy's. And uh, she became a very important part of my journey. Her, her name's Karen Menuin. She's a very mm-hmm. successful 1920s writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so pretty much overnight, I changed from kids' books to uh, murder mysteries Yeah. And uh, that was two and a half years ago.
1: Wow. So that's quite a transition. And I know a lot of people are very interested in children's books. It's like they feel like I think a lot of people feel like those are easier. But would you disagree? (laughs) I think they're often often harder to write than. I think
2: I think there's all sorts of obstacles in kids, books. it's not just that they're trickier to get the language right, because you Mm -hmm. have to really, you know, Measure your language. I don't mean your know, swear words. I mean like the the right uh, level of uh, language for the right age group and these kind of things. Um, but also, you know, originality is essential. I think. Um, whereas, I think you know, we'll probably go on to discuss the fact that as cozy writers, we're not necessarily setting out to write the most original books in the world. We're trying to give people what they want. Well, we, I think, right. with children's books, you really have to come up with an amazing hook, something something that's quite unique. But the biggest problem. Is that you can't sell to kids directly, which you know, right. probably probably a good thing. You don't want to be selling it <laughs> <laughs> to kids, but um, you know the issue is that you know unlike us selling, you know self-publishing, I think uh, it's a lot trickier. And and the self-published kids writers who have had success tend to be people who are going into schools. And as as I live in Spain and I'm I'm British and I'm uh, writing English, that isn't really an option for me. Right. And so you know I I changed from from kids books and I haven't had time to go back to them. Although I would love to go to back back to yeah. my kids books to just yeah. at least publish the ones I've already written um for the moment I've you know I'm a full-time uh, mystery writer
1: yeah so tell us about your first mystery the it's a contemporary it was a contemporary so how long did it take you to write the first mystery book
2: so yeah um so I said I changed to mysteries overnight but that's not quite true because <laughs> uh, I come from a family who adore murder mysteries and I was talking to my I was talking to my aunt and uncle this week and they, they've read some of them mm-hmm. and uh they were saying oh it's it's your mum it's thanks to your mum <laughs> so thanks to your mum's bookshelf isn't it and I thought well actually yeah it probably is because my mum uh he's a, she's a teacher and she right. uh she has this uh, in, in our family house in London she has this gigantic bookshelf which takes over one whole wall of a very large lounge and it's mm-hmm. like you know an installed bookshelf is amazing everyone who comes to my house falls in love with it <laughs> I was in love with my mom as well because she's great, and um, it's covered. It's covered in in murder mysteries. Like half half of this gigantic shelf, probably three four hundred books are murder mysteries or, or you know crime fiction. And so everyone in my family read it growing up. And I studied a module of detective fiction at university. And so when I was you know uh, halfway through that journey with the kids' books, I did actually think, oh, you know what a contemporary Agatha Christie could be a great idea it could be something that people would love knowing nothing about cozies knowing nothing about (laughs) the fact that a thousand other people had had the same idea as me you know so I started writing um the book that became my first published novel which is called A Corpse Called Bob I started Mm -hmm. writing that five years before and I wrote about a third of it and I I really enjoyed it but then you know I got distracted probably with my kids books and and just Mm -hmm. didn't finish it so so when I got that email telling me how well my friend was doing um I went back to that. I didn't want to copy my friend's 1920s books. I didn't want her to feel like I was just ripping her off. Right. So I went back to my my series and it, it, um, it already had the main plot and the main mm-hmm. characters. And I, I knew the twist, even though I didn't know much else. And so, yeah, so I think I got that email from my friend Karen in about probably August 2019. And I mm-hmm. published that first book in December, like De- December 1st, 2019. So it probably took me a couple of months um, I wasn't as fast then as as I am now. But um, yeah, I, I I went through my normal editing process and managed to get it out in a couple of months.
1: Yeah, well, that's terrific. And I think that like, if you come from like, if you read what you're writing in the past, if you've read it and loved it in the past, I think it is easier to write it. So like, like, I'm a longtime mystery reader, it's like my favorite genre to read. So like, it's easy for me to think about a mystery plot and. And it kind of gives you a uh, shortcut, I guess. Whereas if you're not familiar with the genre at all, you might have to read up on it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. My wife will not let me talk during, if we watch a murder mystery. She does not allow (laughs) me to because I am quite good at analyzing the plots and saying what's going to happen. Yeah, Yeah. um, I'm not perfect. I I think with with books, it's harder. With TV shows or movies, it's rare that something catches me out these days because it's just, they signpost it, you know? And so probably because of that, because I spent so long analyzing the way that plots work, I was well-placed to, to start writing. Yeah. And so that contemporary series, I think I just published my eighth book in that series and there's loads of novellas as well, but eight eight novels. Um, And it was a good start, you know, I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, considering the the title of this podcast, there's a lot I learned from it. There's a lot I did wrong, but if I hadn't gone through this process, I wouldn't have moved on to the second series that was more successful.
1: Yeah. So why did you switch to the historicals and how did that come about?
2: So, um, so that's yeah so I published the first one December 2019 a year later I had probably got I think I was publishing my fifth book in that series for Christmas and that book did really well you know I, I'm I should probably you, like I was an English teacher in Spain so English you know a TEFL teacher which is teaching English as a foreign language to mm-hmm. Spanish uh, speakers um I'd enjoyed my job I'd done it for 15 years I, I lived in Spain all the time mm-hmm. and I really loved it but um I never earned any money in it. I mean, we have an incredibly <laughs> cheap lifestyle. And I, I yeah. mean, I, I don't mind telling, you have know, to mentioned other podcasts, I'm, I earned about 15,000 euros a year, which was a great lifestyle. But, you know, in 2018, I had a child. And right. so suddenly, you suddenly things think, things oh, maybe, right? you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe I won't be selfish and only worry about how many concerts I can go to <laughs> a, in a year and where I can go on holiday. And actually, maybe I should save some money for one yes. once in my life, you know? So, you know, I... I was so that first year we, we didn't make loads of money, but I, I came close to covering my first year's salary and it seemed like, you know, it felt like we were doing well and, and COVID mm. certainly helped. I don't want to be positive right. about COVID. I don't want to be positive about the pandemic, but, um, you know, I, I, uh, published my second book like a month into the pandemic and that was when people were sitting at home and reading Mm and so it it helped. you know people were trying to find that book and people really do like that series um it just is there just isn't a a built-in audience for it the way there is for Mm -hmm. 1920s mysteries you know and so I published the Christmas book that year and I thought well it's doing well but I've got about six months before I have to go back to work as an English teacher if this doesn't really take off right and I thought well so I, I always planned to start a second series. I considered maybe something paranormal, but I didn't really, I mean, there are some massive... Mm-hmm. authors in paranormal cases of course but um you know from my friends who were, who were writing it, they were perhaps a little bit disappointed that their their series hadn't quite hit the heights they were planning and there was one person I knew who was doing phenomenally well and that was yeah. Karen with her 1920s so I actually <laughs> asked her I said Karen do you mind if I you know <laughs> jump on board and she said no of course not and she you know she supported me a lot throughout she I, I became her editor I did yeah. most of her books in the, Len- in the Heathcliff Lennox series uh, and, I, and I continued to work with her and you know she's become a great friend of met in real life and she's she's amazing I mean I wouldn't have been able to do it without her right you know cheerleading for me and when my <laughs> my 1920s series came out she she you know published like you know pushed it to her friends and stuff so she's she's been an immense helper um, but you know it was a big change going from contemporary to 1920s it's a period I love you know mm-hmm. I love the United I love the the uh, Boirot series uh, mm-hmm. with uh, David Suchet which is very famous in Britain Um, yeah. and my family my mum's a history teacher so you know I, I know a lot about several periods but she's always really loved the 1920s so again I, I think I had a, a, a good start already you know mm-hmm. a good basis to, to start writing them but um but yeah the thing that that really made me decide to to go in that direction was that I was doing well but not well enough and I really felt I put pressure on myself you know my daughter was about two by the, by the, or three by the stage I put really put pressure on myself to to be making enough money to cover mine and also my wife's salary because she had been home from work uh to have the baby and then um She's a graphic designer and hated her job. And I was really trying to support us both.
0: Yeah. So
2: money, it was all about money.
1: (laughs) It often is. (laughs) It often (laughs) is. I think that like some writers write just for the love of it, but I've always been a writer who wanted to make it my career and make it income and contribute to the family budget, you know? And so that gives you a slightly different perspective. And a lot of times the incentive that we need to like try that new genre or you know try a new new marketing tactic or whatever it is
2: absolutely yeah and I think once you're once you're writing as well once you know even once you're full-time it's what will have to you need that to drive you forward as well because I could write a lot a lot less books now and we'd probably be surviving and Mm we you know we're doing very well so I'm very pleased with that but you know you you have to sort of think about the future you have to think about what's important to you and and I think that drives me onwards. It does, you know. I've been I wrote six books. I published six books last year. I'm mm-hmm. already um I'm on target for five or six this year, depending on how lazy I am this mm-hmm. summer. Um, and if I didn't have that driving me forward, I think it would be more difficult.
1: Yeah, I yeah I understand that. So, well, we're going to come back to marketing and how you kind of launch them. But first, before we do that, tell us a little bit about your research for the 1920s. So, you had kind of a, a general knowledge and a background. Did you do any? Uh, detailed research for your series specifically or how did you go about that
2: um there's i mean definitely done quite a lot of research at this point and done quite a lot of detailed research and and gone beyond sort of wikipedia stage <laughs> of research but i would argue that that's not always necessary you know mm-hmm. I, I love i do like reading historical nonfiction, and so that you know that fed into it but i think the level of detail I include in my book, which people love. And I write a long chapter at the back of my book each time Mm -hmm. about my research. And um and people get in touch with me more often about that than they do about (laughs) the stories themselves, quite interestingly, because people really appreciate understanding which, you know, which part, which elements of truth have been have been incorporated into it. And so I love that. But I also really like the spontaneous research that comes out of just writing a book, Mm -hmm. checking information and then finding out new interesting things that you wouldn't possibly expect to know Mm -hmm. so with the very first book I think because it's all set in a country house in Surrey where I'm from um and is fictional characters fictional situation there wasn't as much history in that book as there has been in the later books where I've looked for new avenues to explore so although I sorry although I checked a lot of facts and I and I did my you know sort of the the, the key elements I, yeah. I put in place it was more geographical research and mm-hmm. te- you know sort of technological for the time research than I didn't put a lot of politics or a lot of you know historical right. events in it because I think it was an introductory book so that was not a massive effort but then uh, the, the fifth book in the series I spent an extra month researching it because I was so interested in the time period and it was about the um, the bright young things Mm-hmm. of the mid-20s a uh, social movement in London among the very rich young aristocrats at the time and that you know I read several books off you know so sort of I didn't really need to read them but it just my, <laughs> my interest got carried away and because it was set in London city it was a lot more complex and right. so you know I I love the research side of it but I don't just spend time researching I'm always writing whilst mm-hmm. researching Except if I have, you know, gone on holiday and I have time to read a book or something like that. The fact was that book was because I took Christmas off, and so I had time to yeah. you know, to read around, uh, to read around the subject. But yeah. um, you know, like, like with a lot of self-publishing, and you know, we, you and I were both at a, a conference a couple of weeks ago where, the, you know, the, the the message was driven home: it's not always necessary to spend a year writing a book. It's not always right. necessary to do a thousand uh, drafts, and it isn't always necessary to spend weeks and weeks or months getting the historical accuracy down to a T, you know? I think, uh, people compliment me on my historical accuracy. My mum would murder me if there (laughs) was a, you know, if there was a... You know, like printer you, in in or a fridge or something in the 1920s. You know, yes. or if I made such mistakes, but you know, she she reads them and says, "I don't know how you do it, Benedict." So, you know, she's she, <laughs> so far so I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I find that when I research, it's more the it's like the little tiny detail that will be a spark of an idea. It's like something that I go, "Oh, that could be a clue," or that could be a red herring. And I find that historical readers love that chapter at the end where you sort out. This was the fact. This is how I, yeah. you know, took it in this direction for this story. This character isn't a historical person, but they were inspired by, you know, reading Absolutely. about this person. Yeah. Yeah. I think readers love yeah. and that.
2: And that. And I think that the internet actually helps with that. Because if you read a book, it's much more linear you just mm-hmm. go through. It's, all, it's a story in itself, you know. And what's wonderful about the internet And what's great about the fact that my books are set in a different part of Britain, each book so far has been set in a different part Mm -hmm. of Britain, is that that I'll then learn about that place and that will trigger historical elements to include in the plot that I wouldn't have come across otherwise, you know? Um, For example, the book I've just finished writing, which will be out probably uh, late August, um, is set in a place where I didn't have any, I didn't have any knowledge of this place whatsoever, but I needed a fancy house to put on the cover. So I contacted Mm -hmm. some wedding venues that I just came across on the internet, And one of them gave me permission to use a a real, it's a castle called Clear, it's called Clearwell Castle. And it's on the Welsh border with England. And it's a fantastic place. And it's got all this history around it, which I then was given permission by the owners to incorporate into the story. And that just came out by chance. You know, it wouldn't have happened if I'd sat in a library for six months planning, (laughs) you know, reading long histories by famous historians, you know. And so things like that, the the organic approach, I think is fantastic. It's magic for me. I love it.
1: Yeah, and it makes the books probably richer because it's, it's it's something that you found and we're incorporating it as you wrote. So that's wonderful. It's, it's a great yeah. feeling when that happens. So, Absolutely. so let's talk a little bit about marketing. So, when you launched your uh, historical series, did you do anything different? Um, do you have do you have like a marketing plan, or do you do it more intuitively?
2: Um, I think what I did differently with the the 20 series was that i saw that it was going well and so mm-hmm. i invested more money in it you know so if i compare yeah. the the very first launch you know uh, Michael, what i was spending under the first lockdown for example with what i then did with the launch of the first 1920s novel that's quite an interesting comparison really so uh by the time we were in lockdown this is uh, march 2020 i guess mm-hmm. yeah? um, my book people started reading it I wasn't making much money but you know I was covering my costs with some Facebook ads and I went from spending five pounds a day or five euros a day to 40 or 50 you know euros which isn't loads of money by a lot of people's standards but it was amazing for me that I was covering my costs I was getting Mm -hmm. reviews I was getting you know good responses people were emailing me people were signing up to my newsletter all these important positive steps that helped build an author right. platform you know so that was like the the sort of low level but still positive beginning and if I mm-hmm. compared that with um uh, a year later when I launched my uh, first in the Lord Edgington Investigate series I just saw from the first day that this book was going to sell because of various factors you can see instantly okay my my initial my existing readers of course I would hope they would change <laughs> from the contemporary series to the 1920s and I think Probably 75% of them did, you know, but that was a okay. small pool. Yeah. Um and so beyond that, what I saw was that my Facebook ads were very cheap compared to what I've been paying for for ads. I saw that um the sales were going well. You know, these kind of key mm-hmm. indicators were really positive. And so mm-hmm. then I could ramp up my um, spend on Facebook advertising and at the time Amazon advertising. Um and so it's a really simple thing, but you know. You, i wouldn't spend i wouldn't spend lots and lots of money unless i could see it would work you right know? and i think mm-hmm. that that some people maybe look at ads and they say okay i've got a thousand dollars to spend i'm going to throw a hundred a day down and mm-hmm. that will make the money i need to g- keep going well that's great if it mm-hmm. works but i think it's better to start slowly i might have started you know even with that with that book i had no idea how well it was going to do and so i probably did start with f- you know 50 i wanted to be you know mm-hmm proactive and i would have started with not with five but but because you know I'd, I'd sort of built up a little war chest from the from the contemporary series to try with the 1920 series but i saw how successful it could be i saw my rank on a fairly low spend and i thought okay let's let's mm-hmm. go for it whilst we can afford it whilst you know we're not gonna bankrupt ourselves uh and there's there was at the time there was still the issue of if i'm spending money now i don't get paid for a couple of months
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we didn't have loads of money to you know to invest but we, we saw the opportunity and we did slowly uh, ramp up the spend, and that was a, that was a huge difference. But we could we knew the second book was coming a month or two later. Right. We knew that the you know that there was definitely an audience for it. We could see the way people were reacting to the books, and just to the, mm-hmm. the cover image as well was mm-hmm. so key the success right. of that first book. Yeah. So I think that's you know <laughs> again very much money based approach. Um, uh, and in terms of, well, and we've sort of done the same thing for each for each book, really. We've, we've used similar uh, strategy for the, book, the subsequent books in the series and it's and it's been working each time.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that there's a difference if if you see a book's doing well and it sort of has its own energy and it's, it's almost like it's like rolling down the hill on its own and you're just going along, giving it little pushes and keeping it going versus like pushing it up the hill. I feel like sometimes I've had books that it's like, no matter what I do, it doesn't have the same yeah. results. And the others, when it when it hits, it's just it's great, and you just kind of roll with it and hope it keep it going as long as you can, you know.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the magic and self formula that you can't teach, right? And you can't deliver in a sound bite. And I think it's the thing that mystifies a lot of people when you go mm-hmm. on the Facebook forums and you right. say and you see people who are saying, "I'm spending all my money, I've got a great book, why isn't it selling?" Mm-hmm because it's not just about having a great book is it it's about having a great and if you look at TikTok or something like that and see where all the the best-selling authors are it's because they're writing in the right genres mm-hmm. they've struck on a upon a formula which is is which people you know, which appeals to people right. you know and I think I was lucky to jump in with the 1920s when I did I think maybe now it's, it might even be more more a little trickier to, mm-hmm. to have the success I had even uh, 18 months ago yeah. you know I think so there is that magic which you have to hope you find, and it can, right. you know, and it can go as well away as well. I know there are writers who've had a great, really successful series, and they've tried to transition to something else, mm-hmm. and it hasn't worked as well. So you know, I fear that just as much. But um, <laughs> yeah, we all do. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> but but, it's um, like if you can yeah.
1: find the, it's like the kind of the Venn diagram overlap of you know what you like, what readers like, the right timing for the genres, uh, and it, yeah. does, it we don't always get it right, and you know it just keep going until we get it right but you mentioned your covers there so talk to me about how you found your cover artist because this is a good story
2: well um so when I was 23 years old I moved to Barcelona Uh and on my very first day I met my wife Uh and it just so happened she was a graphic designer. So yeah, that's it. Done. <laughs> so,
1: so most of us can't follow that plan. <laughs>
2: no, no, it's, it's, it's not very helpful. I'm, I'm giving no useful advice today whatsoever. No, you I mean, are. Ha- have a successful book, marry the right person, done. <laughs> well, that's a lot no. of it. Yeah. That can go a
1: long way towards success. So, so yeah. tell us uh, about your covers and how those, okay. how you yeah. work yeah. on and, those together.
2: Yeah, I mean, the true story of how my wife is much, much longer, and you're lucky not to have to hear it because I <laughs> okay. bore everybody who I meet with that story. Um, so yes, yeah, so like... Um, um, where you know lockdown started my wife wasn't working and so but we saw the possibility with my book you know with that small success I talked about just covering our costs with one book right Um, we saw the possibility of you know moving forward doing the thing you know I'd spent 15 years training to be this to be a writer you know training to do this job and I never made any money in it whatsoever mm-hmm. whilst I was teaching English and so she's a graphic designer she's a very good graphic designer and I'm a writer. And we saw the possibilities. And in the first series, the contemporary series, those covers were, are a lot of work for her because they, she does them from scratch. She right. designs them herself. They're um, vector-based, but um, very much uh, works of art for her. Mm-hmm. You know, not, I don't mean pretentiously. I mean, you yeah, know, she starts them from scratch.
1: I know what you mean because uh, they're, very, um, they're very distinctive. And they, they do yeah. look like they would be a lot of a lot of combining of images and a lot of work
2: yeah she's she's very stylish with those uh the the busy palmer covers um and so when uh we were launching the the, the nineteen twenty series i kind of wanted to give her a break and not, <laughs> not find anything too too difficult and um again looking at you know looking at what covers were around i thought we could do something similar but also try to give it a real luxury feel a real mm-hmm. nice quality feel and so the six or seven books we've already done the covers for, each has a different colour, a different frame around the outside, and each has a very attractive um, photograph, which we we use a filter on to make it look more like a painting, but it's still very much clearly, uh, uh, you know, got a lot of detail on it. And the first one was a um, country house in the centre of England. Um, and we've, you know, we've used landscapes and we've used... Um, what else we uh, scenes from a city as well. And then, as I mentioned, the next one will be a castle, but they've kept this idea of having a very beautiful image because I think mm-hmm. that is essential mm-hmm. for the advertising.
1: Yeah. Uh, whether it's
2: Facebook or brand ads on what's that, what called? Uh, sponsored brand ad, I think it is on, on Amazon. It's the image, you know, as much as people might be attracted to the, the title, they're not, they probably won't read it before they see mm-hmm. the image, you know? So yeah. We've also done things like adding the 90s, the the car that the my detective drives into the picture, which adds yeah. a little. You know, I think maybe pulls in men as well. I don't. I think I you know I probably have about eighty percent female uh, readers, but I do have quite a lot of really uh, devoted male readers. And I think they've you mm-hmm. know a lot of people talk to me about the cars, things like that, little touches which also hint at the nineteen twenties, um, yeah. and the the fonts and these. You know, mm-hmm. we did we did spend a long time with the first in the series to get mm-hmm. the formula right you know right. and it's a great you know like my wife gets angry at me because I have too many opinions on the covers and she says <laughs> I don't I don't come and tell you how to do your books why are you telling me how to do the cover but then in the end I think it, it really works well that we work together and I, I, I'm i tough I'm a tough boss and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I make it and I you know I do we, we not so much these days because we've got the the, the formula down but on that right. those early that first book uh you know we went through a lot of changes to the spacing and the, the fonts right. and all these kind of things and and uh, you know I know people love those covers and I'm I'm hugely proud of them and uh, Marion my wife is, has done an amazing job.
0: Yeah,
1: that's terrific. And I do think that the first, if you can get the first cover, the first book right, the first book cover right, then the rest of the series is much easier. Even if you have yeah. trouble coming up with the exact image or combination or whatever, if you have a pattern that you can follow it does make it a lot easier.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we have made, you know, there's one slip up. One piece of advice to every author is that the, the, the the lightness and brightness of the the image is very important. The fifth book, which came out, I think in February, um, had quite a dark image. It had a very, uh, Mm. it was set at set in winter. So I didn't want it to go. It wasn't a Christmas book, but it was set in winter. So I didn't want, you know, a bright sunny sky like most of them have. Um, And It's a picture of parliament in London with a very, gothic purpley halloween sky essentially Mm -hmm. and and we put a a purple frame around it and it was interesting it wasn't that the book made less money and it wasn't that you know haven't got the same read through but when it came to advertising it was much much more expensive it was almost Mm -hmm. double and Mm -hmm. so my return was lower you see even though it made as much money it's a strange situation but so that was interesting you know and, and you know I know if you do any of the um Cover design for author courses that um, like Stuart Bates has done something. I know um, that people often express how how bright colors make a difference, and the very first level getting people to click on your image or getting people to end up on your Amazon page that can be very important.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think it really like for like historical cozy readers, they want that beautiful country house that they want that place that they would like to go see. You know, maybe they can't travel, but they want to go to england virtually you know and it can make a huge difference if you have something that just makes people go "Ooh, that looks like what i would like you know just pulls them in <laughs> it's like
2: yeah yeah and i spend uh, i i tend to be the one choosing the the images and, and investigating what you can use because you should also be quite careful because you cannot the, i'm i'm currently in in the english countryside on holiday and about 10 minutes walk down the road there is an incredible house that I want to put on my cover. <laughs> I just drove past it last night and I'm considering going and knocking on the door and asking if, if I can use a photo of their house. It is gigantic. It's a mansion but uh, <laughs> probably 18th century. And you I can't I can't just put my camera through there and take a picture of it. Right. It yeah. has to be you have to either have permission of to use the house. And so you have to be a bit careful with the pictures uh, you know available on stock image sites yes. because the photographer could have just gone along there. I mean, who knows if anyone would ever cause a problem, but I've right. been able to find some houses that are either in the public domain because they're public buildings right. or because um, they are I think if it's visible from, you know, the, the, if there are certain conditions, you know, you check out online, but um, you have to, you know, you, it's, it's not that easy to find beautiful country houses. Or it like is. There aren't the yeah. images. Yeah. So uh, I spend, I spend a long time doing it. And so, as I said, I actually started emailing, um, Wedding venues, which would obviously have some interest mm-hmm. in publicity, and I've got this uh, castle to use for the next book, which, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to use if I just bought it on a stock site because you, you'd need the permission yeah. from the owners.
1: Yeah, and a lot of things I found they're um, they're editorial use only. Along, you yeah, know, exactly. a, lot of the, yeah. a lot of the places that I would love to use, I'm like, oh, I can't use that. So, so that's a good tip: is to do yeah. the the wedding venues or approach. You know, do your own research, ask, and see if you can use it. Because a lot of people would love the publicity. You know, so, you yeah, have to yeah. Find so I'm,
2: yeah, I'm going to mention in the book that it's in my notes <laughs> in the fact that it's a wedding venue, and if yeah. anyone wants to go and get married in a in a you know 18th century castle, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the and place then, to
1: go you can offer to let them sell it at their shop or something. That might be another. Uh, yeah, I'm,
2: I'm kind of hoping that they will be interested. You know, it's, it's got <laughs> yeah. the, it's got the title, name of it. So it's Clearwell Castle and it's got the name in the, the, the next book will be the crimes of Clearwell Castle. And there I would have done that if they hadn't given me permission right. as well. So it's right. all, it's, you know, so much of that book is because they said yes, you know, and that's, yes. that's great too. I mean, I, I emailed three people and the other two organizations didn't reply to me. So, I, so I was mm-hmm. lucky, but um, I, oh, yeah. I hope this doesn't trigger a, you know, a swathe of, <laughs> <laughs> millions of emails across britain to get to wedding venues the poor people
1: Oh, <laughs> well, they might they might like it who knows <laughs> yeah yeah well so tell us about um you we talked about your cover designer what about your editor did you how did you find your editor because a lot of people have questions about finding editors well, for their work well
2: i i was born in august 1982 <laughs> uh, yes uh, so my wife is my my cover designer and i am my editor but okay. that's not the whole story because um I go through uh, a three-stage editing process. Essentially, Um, I've never paid anyone to edit my books, which might be foolish of me, but um, the process has been working so far. So, another thing that I gained from that first contemporary series was really dedicated fans. You know, not a massive Mm -hmm. group of them, but a a group of really dedicated fans who were happy to join an arc team. And so, I I set up that arc team for the the Christmas book in my contemporary series. And you know, the vast majority. There's a couple of people who don't read both, but the vast majority stayed with me for um Lord Edgington and so I from that group I became closer friends or you know wrote more to a a very small group of people largely Americans actually who have helped me beyond you know beyond what I could have ever hoped for so I've got um I've got a British history uh, professor who lives in uh Massachusetts I think (laughs) um and her husband who's a mathematician and they are my first readers and so I've just, so I'm finishing this book. You know, I, I write the book. I edit it once, get it to mm-hmm. a state that I'm happy for people to read in, which is normally just one one edit. Um, and the, then a couple of friends and those two two incredible people read my book, get back to me with whatever they feel about it, whether they think the plot is original, fair, believable, whether the language is OK, but not a full on proofread or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then I make the edits. And I, I'm, I'm very responsive to what my readers tell me and what uh, I trust. I trust people and I can normally see if what they're saying is true. And, and sometimes I'll know it and I've been lazy ignoring it maybe. <laughs> so I go through another edit then and then I send it to my ARC team, which is, you know, very fluid, but between 30 and 50 people responding each time. Um, and they are incredible. You know, some of them will just reply saying, I love this book. Thank you so much. And then hopefully give a review when the book's out. And others will send back three, four, five pages of correction proof uh, mm-hmm. of editing. Um, and I'll go. And then once I've got all those responses back, I will uh, make all the changes. Mm-hmm. Probably do one full read through again, and then publish it. And the yeah. reason I haven't paid anyone is because I just don't feel that that again that organic process would work as well mm-hmm. if I was paying someone who didn't know my books. I would love to collaborate with someone. I would love to work hand in hand with someone i wish my one of my brothers <laughs> would decided to give up their jobs and, and say right yeah i'm gonna edit your books i'm gonna we're gonna work on it together and then we'll get the books out much quicker i wish i could trust someone right. to do that I, I wouldn't trust my brothers i don't know why i put them <laughs> forward but um uh, you know in general i, I wish i had a, a partner in this but uh, so far yeah. it's just me yeah. and uh my wonderful arc team who have been sensational but you know i write a book in about three weeks to a month and then the editing process takes the same time more or less. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, uh, that's my goal to uh, book every two months is great. I'd love to be doing what, uh, you know, Tonya Kappers or someone like that does and does <laughs> a book a month or Steve Higgs book every two days. Whatever. <laughs> seems like, um, it, yeah. Seems like, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's working how it's yeah. working. And, yeah. and I like, and, and I feel, and I feel secure that I'm good, putting out a good quality product right. in the time right. frame I've got. So, I'd I'd worry if I was doing it any quicker, probably. Yeah. Well,
1: it sounds like you have a good system and you've got it working. And so that's the main thing. So, so one of the things we like to ask um, is just about like what you wish you had known. So you've already mentioned a few things, but is there anything else that you know now that you didn't know when you started and it would have been helpful or that might help people who are just starting out?
2: I mean, if we're talking about when I first published a book, it was, genre and tropes I did not right. know them as I said I started writing right. my Izzy Palmer book the first one The Corpse Called Bob five years before and I hadn't heard of Cozy Mystery then I mean maybe in you know on the tv or something but I didn't yeah. know what it was I didn't know that there was this you know pretty impressive canon of work out there I mean I think I would have known Hamish Macbeth and um, uh, um Agatha Raisin maybe that's the, thank you Agatha Raisin that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry um but um I i hadn't i hadn't i mean i I, yeah i I had heard of those but i hadn't read any of them and so when i went back to write that i wrote the book that i thought would be really funny and really Mm -hmm. surprising i thought i've got a great twist and no one's going to get it and i thought Mm -hmm. that's what people wanted but i'm not sure but it but and and people love that book as i said you know there's a Mm -hmm. small group of of big fans of that book but Mm -hmm. also i did something pretty stupid i said it in the ugliest town (laughs) <laughs> in Britain by some people's standards I like Croydon I love the, the, the town nearest uh, the place I, I grew up in but um, a lot of people think it, it is cultureless and, and ugly I said it in a tower block what was I thinking oh. I mean you know, these these kind of things and I, I really didn't know what I was saying and if you compare that with my uh, first in in the 1920 series where I, I set it in leafy green beautiful Surrey where I've spent the last two two weeks now in my holiday driving right. my American friends who've been visiting around it's is very i mean those two places are three quarters of an hour drive from each other but they couldn't be further apart you know right. so all of these are all tropes right essentially or niceties you might call them in this case uh i i just didn't know i just didn't know about them mm-hmm. and so i feel quite lucky to have had the success i had with with a, with the first series but do i i mean i used to say that i thought my izzy books were better than my 1920s books and i probably don't anymore because i think <laughs> one has is easy develops better than the other actually But I feel like the books I wrote were good. You know, I love my Izzy Palmer books. But they were not right for the genre. And as I said before, it's not always about writing the best book. It's not always about being incredibly original. I probably included some themes that were not... I mean, they're not not explicit. There's no swearing Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I included themes that were of interest to me, but probably not to... You know our readership, which is often yeah. skews older, female, right. yeah, largely you know a large proportion it will be in America, and I mm-hmm. realised recently a large proportion of that will be in southern states. You know, so there's things there which I which I definitely moved on from between mm-hmm. series. Yeah. Um, but that's a bit of a sad thing to just say, don't you know, don't include that stuff because of course there's lots of people who are successful who who break those trends, but mm-hmm. probably not. I mean, like someone like Janet Ivanovich is often sort of described as cozy but not really cozy, kind of, right? Just, yeah, kind of cozy, really...
1: but not really, yeah.
2: Exactly. So there's definitely, and so that's that was my greatest success actually when I was marketing my contemporary books more towards her than right. to, than, than cozy, you know? So but so you know there's always exceptions. But then she had a big publishing house behind her. She could find mm-hmm. that audience and it mm-hmm. wasn't as easy for an independent author to be breaking the mold, you know? Right. And I yeah. often meet people who are about to re- release books and they'll say, yeah, I've written a 400,000 page uh, novel. And, I, you know, and and there's like, and people keep telling me it's too long, but you know, George R. R. Martin did it. So why can't I? <laughs> and I say, okay, great. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because obviously they're not interested in, you know, real tips that might help them out, but I always feel Absolutely. like it's, it's a mistake to look at traditionally published long career traditionally published authors because they have their own following. And if you're trying to do exactly what Janet Ivanovich does or Georgia R. R. Martin, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure because it's very hard to do that on your own. And yeah, yeah, so it's much better to kind of stay closer to what the readers want. But I've found too, that I've written some series that are not quite cozy. They're kind of close, but they're not quite, but those series, they have a smaller following, but the following is so passionate because they, those books are harder to find, I think. So like once they find it, they're in, you know? So, so talk to us about writing a contemporary and uh, historical, like how you're balancing two different series.
2: Yeah. I think it's really healthy to, to have two contrasting series. Actually, I think my ideas. So yeah, my ideas come better when I'm, when I'm doing one book and one series and then the other one, but because the 1920 series has been so successful, I'm doing less of the contemporary series and I will still finish it, but there's only a couple of books left. Mm-hmm. I always said it was going to be 10 books and there's really only two books left to, to complete the story um, and probably do the odd novella, to, you know, just as a sort of freebie to fans who, who love mm-hmm. those books. Um, but for the most, for last year, you know, most of last year I was doing alternately contemporary and then historical and it, it was it was great it was great it gave me a break from mm-hmm. the past and it gave me a break from the present you know yeah. and it, it kept the, the humor fresher you know in both my series a lot of humor and the the izzy mysteries are the izzy palm mysteries are very quirky and wacky and <laughs> sometimes it's, I love it I'm you know splitting my sides as I write and sometimes I think oh gosh this is so kooky what, <laughs> what is wrong with my brain why am I coming up with this stuff so you know to have a break away you know to pull away is great and, I, and I'd like to do that you know longer term I would like to find a second genre that's complementary um mm-hmm. maybe romantic comedy I do love romantic comedy um mm-hmm uh and I'm that you know that's that would be nice as well to have a break from mystery because the the that I find difficult in writing mystery after mystery after mystery is is coming up with a really um sophisticated plot or a really original right. plot and I do try very hard to surprise my readers and I think I've never had a book where where I've had more than a few people tell me they've solved the plots which is you know which is what Agatha Christie was trying to do mm-hmm. and that's what I you know I'm not saying I'm as good as her but that's what I'm <laughs> trying to emulate you know I'm, right. want, I'm not you know i i want to be a good mystery writer not just a good writer who people whose people whose books people love you know right so uh yeah i think it would be lovely to have not just two different mystery series but two different com- compatible genres um uh, but for the moment it's going quite well
1: yeah well that's good well um we're getting close to the end of our time but i did also want to ask you about um writing a male protagonist in a more cozy type series? Cause I've had a lot of authors say, you know, does your cozy have to have a female protagonist? And I don't think it does. Have you gotten any feedback on whether readers are looking for that or do they not have any comment on it at all?
2: Well, so, you know, again, my, my, um, my template was Karen Menuhin mm-hmm. and she has a quite sporty, heroic male lead Mm-hmm. Uh, again in the 1920s and historical i think it would be more difficult in a contemporary cozy i do think it would be and you know so my contemporary mm-hmm. cozy has a female narrator and a female mm-hmm. um detective uh with a male sidekick but um and I can, I can imagine sort of using one of my characters from that series in a in a spin-off but mm-hmm. i think you know knowing the the readership of cozy versus historical cozy there is quite. A, I think there could be quite a split, and and again, as I like, like sort of implied a moment ago, historical cozy readers tend to be quite conservative, at least in their mm-hmm. tastes. You know, right. so I had this kind of idea <laughs> that a male narrator might be popular for that reason. You know, this sort of. So my my narrator isn't super heroic. He's he starts off uh, in the first book as sixteen year old, and at this point, he's about he's about to turn eighteen. I think in the series. Um, And so we see him developing, he starts off very sweet and he's slowly developing as as a sidekick to his much uh, wiser and more experienced grandfather. Um, And, you know, obviously, you know, I I had the opposite reaction when I was writing Izzy, to begin with, a few people would message me saying, why are you writing from a female perspective? (laughs) Other people would say, well done, writing from a female (laughs) female perspective, it's convincing. So um, I think with with the historical, though, you know, no one would have ever said to Agatha Christie, why are you writing Poirot? or or any of the, the, the famous queens of, of crime fiction who, who mainly right. wrote male protagonists. So there's mm-hmm. definitely much more history, yes. much more, you know, um evidence for male detectives in the historical period. Right. Compared to the to the cozy. Um just, I kind of feel like it's a challenge. Like, like now I have to try and write a male cozy, <laughs>
1: <laughs> That can is, be is that your, trying to do? That can be your third thing that you branch into (laughs) yeah maybe might have to be yeah 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 and I think most readers they're I don't think they come into it thinking oh I want to read about a male protagonist or a female they just want the story and if it has a male protagonist they're like great let's go you know I don't think I think we as authors sometimes parse things down so small in trying to figure out why certain things are successful that maybe we are focused on the wrong thing sometimes
2: so yeah but I mean I, I do think I mean I really hope that someone does take a male uh Uh, protagonist for a for contemporary cozy because a a reader contacted me about a year ago and we became quite good correspondents and he's just published his first uh, couple of books in his series and he asked me back then he sent me this long list of questions and Mm -hmm. he asked me back then whether I thought you know he should he could have a a male Mm -hmm. uh, protagonist and I think I said you know gave the answer I just have now but um, he ended up changing. He was mm-hmm. going to write a book about a sort of a minister, a Christian mm-hmm. minister, who was mm-hmm. you know solving crimes, and he ended up changing to to a female uh, narrator. So mm-hmm. you know, wasted opportunities <laughs> for us to find out. But, um, I really, so, I really hope that's, that that is that has some some legs. I really hope yeah. that some sometime soon someone will do that. There you go. I hope one of our listeners takes that idea.
1: Yeah. I'm sure somebody will. So that'll be good. And yeah. there are a couple, like there's Hamish Macbeth, That's more, sure. yeah. but, I mean, that's traditionally published. So. Yeah. so there is an opportunity there, I think. So that's a interesting thing. Yeah, I think again, up.
2: again, maybe I think it would have to have some softening feature. Like I do like writing about elderly people. Like mm-hmm. I always have in my kids mm-hmm. books as well. I'd often have like grandfather figures. Mm-hmm. And so my, my detective in the 1920s is a 75 year old. He starts on his birthday when he's 75. Um, and so, you know there is a sort of subgenre of old old lady detectives you know sort mm-hmm. of uh, yeah. miss marple so but even in, even within contemporary um but uh you yeah, know I, I have got one sorry i lied i have got one friend peter Boone. he writes um agatha christie inspired contemporary novels with a with a male
1: oh okay
2: Narrator, there you go. Okay. I found so one.
1: we'll have to look him up. And he, so then... and,
2: yeah, and he did. And his first few books did very well. He's uh, not been publishing as regularly, but his launch went exceptionally well. And only focusing on on, on Britain to begin with, and then he was mm-hmm. going to expand to America. So yeah, so yeah, yeah it can be done. It can. Yeah, there you go. so
1: that's good. Long good answer, news. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that's good news. Well, yeah. um uh, as we wrap up, we always like to everybody ask everybody what's the best thing you've done to set your, yourself up for success? Do you think?
2: fail. <laughs> I failed. I failed for a long time. I okay. spent, I got really good at not getting published. Um <laughs> so when I was trying to publish my uh, kids books, I spent yeah, it's probably 10 years of actually sending them to people, uh, to set to agents, uh, largely agents, occasionally editors, uh, sorry, occasionally publishers. Um and I had loads and loads of rejections and they did Um, not make me stronger despite what other people will say (laughs) they made me sad and wish I was published um but during that time I improved as a writer and I'm not saying that you need to write for 10 years in order to be able to publish books but I learned a lot of important uh, lessons from them I learned to take advice because sometimes you know agents would then really love the book mm-hmm. and spend a few months with me working on it and they'd tell me what to change and I'd send it back to them and then they'd disappear because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a difficult business getting published traditionally um, is, yeah. but uh yeah um but yeah I mean I think maybe the one the one really really, really massive thing that I'm I'm pleased about is that I do take feedback well and and even just unsolicited feedback people will send me um i'm i'm happy to hear it even if i don't agree with it always or even if someone's a bit rude <laughs> I, I generally i generally like knowing what people think and with with the readers i trust i respond to that and you know someone might say to me oh, i really liked this character earlier, you know, in one of the earlier books, and would like to see more of them, and, and I've brought that character back just because on the basis of one mm-hmm. email, which might be against what everyone else thinks, <laughs> but it probably isn't. You know, someone's taken the time to, to, right. to email me; they would probably have got a strong feeling about it, and then I'll have nice comments on on that element of the plot. You know, so um, yeah, I think the one thing I've done that really sets me up for, for success is is remembering mm-hmm. that I can fail, and then you know, trying to trying to avoid those situations by listening to what other people think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great advice. Wonderful note to end on. <laughs> so um, where can people find out more about you?
2: Uh, you can go to my website, which is benedictbrown.net. Uh, I'm also on I've, my main platform is Facebook for social media. Um, but okay. yeah, my website has is generally up to date if my wife's not too busy.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. And we'll have those links in the show notes. And thanks to everybody for listening today. Well, you can find everything at wishI'dknownthempodcast.com. Thanks to Alexa Larberg for editing and producing the podcast and to Adriel Wiggins for doing the admin. See y'all next week. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.